There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Everton get that new manager bounce under Sean Dyche with a massive win over the league leaders, Arsenal who maintain their lead thanks to defeat for Manchester City at Tottenham Hotspur. What is going wrong for Pep Guardiola and City? Liverpool lose a third straight away league match for the first time since 2012, smashed by Wolves at Molyneux. Is Jurgen Klopp running out of energy? We'll also talk about the bottom of the league, important victories for Nottingham Forest, a big defeat for Southampton at Brentford, Nathan Jones under big pressure there, and we'll be talking about some of the other big teams, Chelsea, Leicester and Newcastle. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Tony Cascarino on this Monday morning. Loads for us to discuss. We'll start with the new manager bounce at Goodison Park. Sean Dice with a dream start. Everton stunning the Premier League leaders Arsenal in front of a raucous crowd. Dyche appointed last Monday after the departure of Frank Lampard, sacked with the team in the relegation zone, and they picked up a first victory in 11 games in all competitions. Two of his former Burnley team combining for the goal, James Tarkovsky uh, heading in Dwight McNeil's corner. Thousands before the game, marching down Goodison Road, protesting against the Everton board and the running of the club. A plane even flew over the ground with the words, league's worst run club, time to go, Bill, aimed at the chairman, Bill Kenwright, went over the ground during the game as well. Um, And it was just, it was one of those results that so many fans saw coming, didn't they? You know, it was like Sean Dyche criticised for his style of football back in management against a team that's absolutely flying in the shape of Arsenal. And it just turned into a bigger and bigger and bigger snowball effect in terms of how he felt things might go against Arsenal. I mean, just an amazing stat, generally. The last 14 permanent Everton managers have avoided defeat in their opening game. So there you go, a first win in nine in the Premier League. Tony, big impact from Sean Dice. What did you make of this performance? Not surprised at all, Pugh. Ah, look. They're trying to be smart here and say that, of course, I think, you know, Everton going to go beat Arsenal. I'm not surprised at the outcome of the game and how it was played. I thought it was really interesting the way that, obviously, two big midfielders, Decore and Onana, they're huge men, you know, in midfield, get to players as quick as they could. I thought Seamus Coleman was brilliant on the right against Martinelli. I thought Sacco and Dwight McNeil doubling up and the fullback stopping Saka and, and again spoke about this in the paper today about teams are going to double up against your Saka because you're so good Man City did it in the cup now that you're Everton have gone with the same ploy to stop him and they got frustrated and you could see the frustration by Shinchenko at the end where they're losing it they weren't happy I, I thought the Everton performance was exactly what I thought Dice would do as in Big physical, strong team. We'll get them in certain situations. We won't even give them time to breathe. They won't like it. And I just thought, fair play. Uh, it, and, and people are going to go back to 
Frank Lampard and why couldn't he get... Well, he did get them sort of tunes out of the team at the end of last season because the atmosphere at Goodison was very hostile and the, there was drama and the games, the way they could turn it round. He just lost his way with this team. And a new man coming in, and look, I hate the phrase dinosaur because I think there's some really decent managers who have done great jobs over the years. But Cassasaurus that I am, I felt <laughs> fair play, <laughs> fair play to Sean Dyche because he showed everything about what his team will be. And I'd applaud them because Saturday they were brilliant in every level, energy, desire, motivation, everything was there. You can ask all the other questions afterwards about why did this team not have it before? Well, I'd be surprised if they show any of that, you know, lack of lackluster performances between now and the end of the season. All the fundamentals of a Sean Dyche team on, on display on his first day. And I, I agree with Tony, the midfield is, is where the game was won. It was kind of the really stifled space for, for Odegaard. I think Newcastle's probably only the, the team has come closest to doing a job as good as that on Arsenal in terms of the midfield. And, the, you know, there was no space, no no little pockets for Odegaard to pop up in. Jacka was pretty ineffective. And those three, when you look at them, <laughs> you think that's a Idris Agui as well in there. Yeah, yeah. That is a the makings of a really, really solid, energetic, dynamic, all those words. Engine room for Everton. And it's just that there's been there's been injury problems with those three, there've been disciplinary problems. You know, he's thirty three now, you wonder whether his legs are quite what they were, but I think so a stat where no Everton won no Everton no Everton player had more touches than Onana. No player won possession more than Gay, and no player made more interceptions than Dakuri. So the three of them, you know, they all stepped up. And then the, the other thing to say is just, you know, you were smacked in the face by how much of a Sean Dyche fit Dominic Calvert-Lewin's going to be. Yeah. If he's fit. Yeah. I've yeah. said this so many times. If he stays fit, and they're swinging, swinging balls in the box, there's no better player in the Premier League. There's no better player. Um, and it was there was, you know. Sometimes it's been, it was an issue early on about getting players close to him, but he was always winning the flick-ons. Yeah. It was just it's about having being brave enough to get players in support of him. Uh, and he had a couple of half chances. The one that kind of little flick, uh, I think it was across across goal and just narrowly wide. One that was flashed across the box. He'll score. He'll score goals if he stays fit. Yeah. It's almost unfortunate, Frank Lampard, watching that, saying you barely played yeah. for me in the first game after I go. You've probably put in your best Everton performance for a couple of seasons. Uh, haven't seen much of Dominic Calvert-Lewin, but um, it was important for Sean Dyche to have him. Alison, it was important for that Goodison crowd to be behind Sean Dyche as well. Great atmosphere. I guess it was kind of at fever pitch, given the protests as well. What did you make of everything inside of Goodison Park, really, those fans and the football? I agree with the chaps wholeheartedly. I wasn't really surprised. I thought Daesh was the right appointment. And I think he's almost playing to a parody of himself because he likes to, I think, post-match, he sort of brings up problems that aren't there and questions that aren't being asked. I mean, Tony mentioned the word dinosaur. He likes all that. He likes saying, oh, don't put me in a box, but he's the one who mentions the box in the first place. It's rare, actually, for a club to go to a manager because of the uh, the specific reputation and think, oh, you know, he's the opposite of what we had before, which was an up-and-coming and possibly unproven in many respects manager, certainly not a manager who knows how to handle a crisis. And Dyche has had crisis after crisis throughout his time at Burnley. It's been, let's see what we could do, let's see what we could do, and then over overachieving 
but always from the low base of it, there being, you know, one game away from a crisis. And we know, we feel like we know him really well and what he'll bring. You know, you can see that that's why we had the bleep test stories because he's playing up to this image of I wear shorts in the icy cold and you do not, you do not wear snoods out there. You, you train as you play and I am no nonsense. And sometimes I got the impression anyway, that sometimes players, that's all they want is straight talking from the gut, from a place of, I know you can give more. And I want you to give me more. I don't. I don't want any frills. I just want you to do it. And his stats across, you know, most most area. There are more interceptions under him. Um, crosses. That's what we expect, isn't it? Crossings. Crosses from wide. Far more crosses under Dyche than ever to work putting in beforehand. Just getting shots away. Just just going. Just that idea of going for it. And I think, I think overall, Everton fans were behind the appointment. I think they could see the logic to it and they expected an uplift and they they saw it straight away, so therefore they bought into it. They made the atmosphere very, very positive. And if they can keep doing that all season, backing the players and the manager and having a go at the board in a separate sense, so not while the match is going on, separate it out, I think... They could work. I mean, I had Everton as a team to go down at the start of the season. I didn't know that Sean Dyche was going to come in. If he can keep this up, I mean, that's the only question mark, isn't it? You get that first game where everyone's adrenaline is pumping like crazy because they want to impress him and show him that they're not soft and they can play football without a snood on. But does that last? That's that's the key yeah. question. But to answer, to answer your point, Hugh, if the crowd maintain the atmosphere levels that there were, but for less interesting years, I mean, they're, they're the league leaders are there. That's what made it doubly impressive. It was like the baptism of fire and it didn't seem to phase them whatsoever. But if they can keep that going against teams that are teams that have less less imagination, teams that are prepared just to, to defend in depth, if they can keep it going, then of the course, course they'll be safe and the, the crowd will keep going too. I just want to make a point here because it's quite an important one for me and I'll be interested to see what you guys think of it Um I was very dubious when Frank Lampard had Paul Clement as his coach because he plays a very much based, not good for a centre forward. You know, it's very possession based, move it around the midfield. He did that as a Swan- when he was a manager at Swansea. I remember Tammy Abraham's going there. And I kept thinking, Tammy, you've just gone to a manager or a coach as he was at Swansea that was running the club who is all possession based. He's got loads of goals at Bristol City, he's got loads of goals at Aston Villa. And, he's, and Tammy found it very hard to get goals at Swansea. You could say, well, Swansea weren't a particularly good team at that time in the Premier League. But I've always felt that when I see Paul Clement as a coach, and if he has any impact, because that's his job, to implement a style that the manager agrees with, that Calvert-Lewin will suffer with crosses and things that come into the box and drop. Now, we know he was been injured. We know he's been out for a long time. But I would say that, as Gregor touched on with Calvert-Lewin, that having a manager and a coach that's going to demand that everything that they do must end with somewhere for Calvert-Lewin to be on the end of. And that's a big point because was it coincidence that Calvert-Lewin looked far more like himself at the weekend? You know, that we haven't seen that Calvert-Lewin for so long. I personally thought it was a strange appointment to have an assistant or your number one coach be a very possession-based man when the team isn't really built for that. The point I also made as well about... Simplicity. 
I think yeah, I, I did a little piece uh, about Deitch at the weekend, and you know, listened to a few. He's done quite a few podcasts and stuff mm-hmm. since he's been. We should have got him on uh, <laughs> since he's been at work. And one of the quotes that jumped out to me was that he kind of he was channeling his inner Brian Clough, having worked briefly with Brian Clough at his, the start of his career, was people forgetting the value of simplicity. Mm. And I think in a, a club like Everton's situation, it is like, you know, clear as day what he expects of them all now. Absolutely, you know, there's no there's no grey areas whatsoever. As Tony's saying, no grey areas about what they want at the end of end of a movie. They want to get the ball forward, they want to hit Calvert-Lewin, or they want to cross in the box for Calvert-Lewin and get people in support of him. That is priceless just now. But it was also very instructive in, in Paul Joyce's piece this morning that Deitch was keen to kind of play all that down as well, as Alison was alluding to there. He was saying, like, yeah, this is fine, this is day one, but, you know, when that wears off, when the kind of, the novelty of that wears off, are we still all, have we still all got our noses facing the same direction? And he did that with Burnley, so that's his challenge. Like, he's got he's got a, a massive rise out of the one the first day because he, he stripped it back to basics. He said, this is what I want, this is what, this is what I expect and demand. It's whether he can just continue to get that because Everton have actually let down a lot of managers over, but, you know, over a period of time, have shown glimpses of what they can do, what they're capable of, and they've let down managers, I think. So can Sean Dyche get a bit more from them over an extended period of time? I just wonder, because we've got the Merseyside derby coming up, I think it will help Everton enormously to buy into the simplicity of Dyche. The fact that uh, Liverpool are in a bit of a crisis and it all looks, uh, Liverpool all looks a bit sort of frilly and poncy by comparison and I think Everton will take sucker from that I think they will they will I'm not talking about specifically the derby itself I'm just talking about that contrast in styles I think the fans will buy in to the straightforwardness of Daesh's tactics and it's built on energy and commitment and straightforwardness because they'll like the fact that that's a more successful formula than what's coming out of Anfield at the moment. Arsenal. Let's talk about them. Positive uh, for Sean Dyche, but obviously for Arsenal in a Premier League title race. And we'll go on to talk about Manchester City, um, who also lost this weekend, and so it didn't really affect things at the top of the table. But it has been a long time since Arsenal were beaten, really. First time in 13. I just wondered... Um, uh, what you thought about Mikel Arteta's response, Alison? I'll ask you about this. Uh, he says, I love my players more than ever after this result because I love them when things were going well and I cheered them when things were going well. And so now uh, I have to give them support. And, and I, I kind of liked that. Um, it wasn't like he wasn't panicking. It wasn't just an uh, indifferent response. It was quite a positive, you know, we're going to keep this team spirit together. We're going to keep together uh, on this in terms of the strength of... of what might come down the road if there is a patch of form um, that Arsenal go through that's not great? I think it, it kind of set a, a positive tone. Well, it was very pep. Well, I think this is the most pep that, that Arteta's been, actually. That is almost verbatim what you would have expected Guardiola to say in a similar... And he has said in the past when there's been a blip, when he's been top of the table... He often says things like he loves his players more in defeat and saw more than we saw, and always is sort of contrarian. Like, well, well, when he when you expect him to lavish praise, he does not, and when you expect him not to, he does. And Arteta has learned this; he's seen it in action. He knows you build a title-winning team by praising them when they've just been defeated. 
because that's when they need, they don't need your praise when they've won. The winning is enough. The role is enough. But when they've lost, you need. that's when you need to remind them how good they are, that it's not significant. It's these things happen. And he will be saying behind the scenes, you know, this, we were just dreadfully unlucky to come to Goodison at the point where fate combined, all the forces of fate combined to make it a game we couldn't win because of what was going on with the home team. And to prepare for that, you know, he, he probably didn't get the um, loudspeakers out to try and recreate the Goodison roar, did he, this time around? Because he wasn't expecting it to be as positive as it was. So, and in, the, and in that sense, I do have some sympathy. Any team going to Goodison at that moment in history, don't, they won't have had much time to prepare for the change in Everton. They did look for once. We've all, you know, we've all wondered if they're too young and inexperienced to win the title. They did look a tad young and a tad inexperienced. They weren't dreadful by any means, but there was a passivity there, an inability to put their character on the game. They, they, at no point did I think they were telling us, "We are the league leaders here." Actually, you're you're in the bottom three. We, you know, we're, we're in a better place than you. There was no strut. There was no arrogance. So, and that's something you learn over the years. And they're not, this is all new for them to be leading the league and to be with a chance of the title. So I think, yeah, he did the right thing to say he praises them. We could, with hope that there's, it's fate. It's not they've done something wrong. And if anything, if anyone did anything wrong, it's probably him because he didn't give them the tools to overcome what Daesh put in front of them. Okay. Reflections on Arsenal's defeat? Anything bigger possibly coming down the road? Well, I think if you want to take some positives out of the Arsenal defeat is that you wake up Monday morning, your rivals have lost, you've still got a game in hand on them, you can still be the same distance away from them in points if you win that. There's 18 games left for Arsenal. Losing that game and the style that Everton played, you'd have learned something, Arteta. Mm. Do you know what? The next most similar team they're gonna that are to Everton, if you want to see the way they played, is Brentford. And that's who they play next at the Emirates. So you're gonna be well prepared for some great battles. Rico Henry up against Saka. You know, I talked about people doubling up and doing a really good job, and he's gonna have to face that challenge as a player. But they're a big, strong team. They have a big, powerful midfield, Brentford. So it's a very good preparation, that game to know what needs to be done this week and going into the weekend's game. So there are some positives, and they didn't play well. Alisson was spot on there. That didn't resemble. That's the worst Arsenal have played all season. And I don't think you'll, we'll see that uh, very often in the next part of the uh, season. And you're going to have days. You know, I've seen great sides that won, won things and played against them and come and think, they weren't that good. Then, then they'll go and win five games on the spot on the mm. spin. No, so this was it's just a Cascarino effect on that afternoon. No, it's just a, it's just a. <laughs> I remember playing Man United at the the old den, and and we played them, and they were just a really average team. We fought on the day, and then ended up in the league quite comfortably. <laughs> they beat us five one at Old Trafford, and it's like, oh, good luck there on that one. <laughs> um, but you know, and this is what I mean. Uh, there were all going to be some positives. I do think having Brentford next is a good thing to face them after. Because they, I don't know, Gregor and Al think the same, and you, Hugh, is that Brentford are very similar in the way that 
I mean, big midfield, big strong runners in there, players that are going to get to you really quickly. And and Brentford can flip probably as well as any anybody between a four and a back five. They do that really well. Okay, let's move on very quickly. We'll talk about Brentford's win a little bit later on against Southampton, so we'll come back to them. Uh, But as we mentioned, Arsenal's slip-up didn't affect their position at the top. They're still five points clear with a game in hand. Huge missed opportunity for Manchester City because, of course, they're going to play Arsenal twice. They would have been within those six points, if you like, even with Arsenal's game in hand, had they beat Tottenham Hotspur. But it was a puzzling performance, to be honest. Another one from Manchester City. Beaten 1-0 at Tottenham Hotspur. Harry Kane uh, breaking the club goal scoring record with his 267th Spurs goal. But City just aren't quite right, are they, Gregor? Um, too easy to score against. And they, they lack that control over football matches that we've become familiar with, which is, I think, why we had those conversations earlier in the season about whether Erling Haaland had made them better or worse. I think we've, we've gone beyond that argument, to be perfectly honest. But they do need to find a recipe to getting back to the team that just applied so much pressure that eventually you would crack. I mean, Manchester City aren't that team at the moment, are they? Um, Guardiola says they aren't currently in a position to think about the title. What do you think their issue is at the moment? It's very hard to put a, put a finger on. I mean, one thing you can say is you're, you're looking at a team that don't look anything like Manchester City and two really good pieces in the Times today, in fact. One by Martin Samuel, who's arguing that Pep always does it his way, no matter what. Like we think about him, no matter you know we, how much we pour over, he over, he's overthinking. Particularly in the Champions League, he'll never wake up the next day and say, and say "I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that." He's always doing it his way. And what we're seeing now looks like Pep <laughs> certainly doing it his way in terms of, you know, it's essentially a three-four. What was it? Three-two-four-one. Yeah. You know, it, I know that. Formations are pretty fluid these days and we're talking, you know, there's no way Rico Lewis was, was a left-back in that game. So we're playing a, an inverted left-back pretty much permanently in a two-in-field. What is it that he's suddenly seeing in, in Aki and Akanji in, to replace uh, Diaz and Laporte? You know, they, they've been stalwart, fundamental kind of players for... And, for, and allowing Joao Cancelo to leave the club. Yeah. So there are, there, there's a lot that's that's kind of, that's puzzling. And... There's a there's a Manchester City team at the end of it, which is not the one that we we've come to recognise. So that's the first thing you got to say. And Haaland, I know we keep going through this cycle about if he's you know scored a hat trick the other week, and you go, oh, everyone's saying, how can Haaland be the problem? Tony in particular. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no doubt you watch him, and there's so much wasted energy. Yeah. Like he makes the runs, he keeps making the runs, and then he like and you can see him getting frustrated now, and yet like. When it works, when he scores the hat trick, when he scored and he scored so many goals already, that's, that's we can't get away from that fact. It's fine, and you you ask him the question, and he says, "Yeah, you know, I, I don't care I'm, as long as I score the goals, and I, you know, I'm doing the job for the team." But it's when it, when that's not happening, it it looks like a problem, and as I say, it must be so demoralising for him just to see the the level of working and endeavour and, and and sort of thought that he that, that goes into his play. Trying to be explosive, trying to make runs in behind, trying to do, trying to come short sometimes, and and really just having no involvement in the play. So there are a lot of things that are puzzling about Manchester City just now, and I mean they they were nothing like the City team that we've come to know. How do they get that connection? You've played in the position, obviously, Tony. Well, I don't put it on Haaland at all. 
Greg has just talked about there, where he makes the runs, he's looking to get the ball and they're not doing, you know, a manager or a coach has to see how do we utilise him, get the best out of him. It doesn't necessarily have to always be goals, but that's how we're going to look at him at the end of the season and go, well, he got 25, 30, 35 goals. They are not playing in a similar way to, you know, the, uh, the numbers game, okay? We got 21 games last year. After 21, they had 53 points. This year, they got 45 points. So they're eight points off of last year. What are the differences? I think they're easier to play against. I totally agree. Not seeing Diaz on the pitch was, was, I just find, ridiculous at the weekend. I find De Bruyne being left out. Yes, he hasn't been at his, uh, you know, peerless best. He's been he's been a great player and servant for them. I just, this, even the goal, the goal is something you wouldn't associate with, with, you know, looking at Rodri, get the ball. Yes, they like to play into midfield, into Rico Lewis, as you tell us, and we were left back. He's playing central midfield in that position. He's running back at his own goal with a player, Hoiberg, closing him down. That's really high-risk football, especially with a young lad. You know, and yes, he's capable to receive it, turn and move. I'm sorry, there's a... Pep has to take some flack because... Genius and idiot are very closely related. Okay, as I know, you know yeah. I have more of a problem with the kind of. I know it's our job to kind of critique and and to say what what are you doing, Pep? But like, it's hard to see to even think about calling Pep Guardiola an idiot. Like, Rodri's an idiot though in this but, situation. But we're seeing, but we we don't know why he's leaving out De Bruyne. We don't know why he feels compelled to. He thinks that Lewis needs to be in this team, and like we, he's been excellent. For large periods of the game. It's not that Lewis is like, in the and, team. It's and, not but, that Lewis but, is in the team. Lewis's place in the team changes the formation, the shape of the team. It doesn't do the same thing with Kyle Walker yeah. playing playing right back. So okay. I don't know the reason why he's doing that, essentially. And look, we're, we're probably going to come on to talk about there's some yeah. big things going on in the background of the club. But I was going to just make one really big point. And there's something I noticed where I felt about myself when I started punditry is that Sir Alex Ferguson was always up there that no one would question him because he was so successful and got so many decisions right. But you could... Everyone makes mistakes. All of us make mistakes. Yeah. Okay, and Guardiola is making mistakes, but we'll get away with it within this world because we're all afraid if we say something and you go, oh, he was an idiot in that incident. I think at the weekend he was an idiot. And the way he selected his team and some of the decisions he's made uh, on personal level... Honestly, Cancelo leaving the club, I don't get that for love nor money. I don't get that at all. Now, you can fall out with players, but he's acted that's ended up in a way for me that's cost Man City. And he could, I could be in humble part of the season, could win the league. But uh, this weekend, he managed and coached, I felt, like an idiot. You wouldn't be surprised if Man City win nothing, which, to be perfectly honest, with the manager they have and the squad that they have, we should never really be saying. Equally, you wouldn't be surprised if they win a couple of trophies from here on out because they, they are on their day still an excellent team. But the amount of quality on the bench at the moment isn't just we've got a squad full of brilliant players. I mean, Ilkay Gundogan barely ever starts. Kevin De Bruyne is being left out at the moment. When Phil Foden was fit, he was regularly on the bench. Carl Walker too. Ruben Diaz, Eimerick Laporte. Players that he, at the moment, doesn't trust and doesn't fancy. And it looks to me, Alison, like... And he said it verbally. He, he kind of wants to get energy, fire, passion out of the players. I think he's feeling as if there is a little bit of complacency in his team. So play the youngsters, the ones that are hungry. You know, maybe send a message to the rest of the squad by letting Cancelo go. You know, that come on, you, you, you need to start giving, giving some more. I get it. 
But um, but but honestly, the 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 quality of the players, even if they're not hundred percent, even if they haven't got the fire in their belly, Kevin De Bruyne is still a player that needs to start that football match. And so you will get criticism leveled at you if you're not winning games. I don't know. It just it, something's not right at City. It's really hard to get the energy and commitment and the level that Guardiola wants. If he's making so many changes, he's creating the problem, I think, because it's baffling. You lose. If your brain is having to work out a new formation and different people fitting into different patterns than you're used to, you're, you're actually losing energy, absorbing that and working out what's expected of you and sort of just computing what's going on because they've got too much to consider. We... We've just been saying, wow, why did he do this? Why did he do that? Imagine if you're in the team and it's happening to you. I mean, I don't, it's it's too easy to just say, oh, well, you know, given his success and his re- track record, we just have to assume that we're the stupid ones and what he's doing is is a level of genius beyond us. Football is popular because it's a, a relatively simple game and Riyad Mahrez has been the bright, spark for City of late and he was he hit the woodwork in this game and looked like the player that Spurs were most worried about and so he takes him off. It's as though he's done a pact with the devil. If I really, really do stupid things all season in the league, will you give me the Champions League, please? Because it's otherwise it doesn't make sense to me because these are the sort of tweaks he makes when he's under pressure. It that and that's usually in the Champions League situation. And you think, oh, come on, you're overthinking this or do you care too much about this? We know he doesn't care too much about the Premier League because he knows how to handle it and how to win it. And he could be winning it. He could be winning it with ease if he gave the team a set pattern, personnel, people slotted in and out, knew what to expect. It's it's just asking too much. He's asking too much of the players, I think to really, truly understand what's going on, what's expected of them. And that means you get crazy passes like the one Rodri made. That is, if you had to do a list of the 10 most stupid passes this season, that would be be in the top two or three, wouldn't it? And I don't blame the player. I blame the manager because he's he encourages, you know, lateral thinking. You can't do lateral thinking in those situations. It's It's... I mean, Martin Samuel's point was that he's true to himself and we have to applaud that. He will do what he needs to do and we just should bow down to his superior intellect. I think he's been doing the same job in the same place for too long and that the one thing he really hankers for is on a different plane from what he desires from the league at the moment. It's, 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 And if you start falling out with players, to me that speaks of not enjoying the job as much as you did because the job is about relationships and acknowledging what you need from each individual to get the best from them, not selling them off because they dare to question you from time to time. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't go down the route of, oh, he's a genius, let's just see how it unfolds. I, I just think sometimes <laughs> I just think sometimes he gets so bored, to be honest. I think one one thing we can all agree on is that if he sees any any sign of standard slipping, he's not someone who's going to try and like put an arm around the shoulder and say, 
no, come on, we need more from you. Or go back to basics and find the old Manchester say, you know, rely, the reliable players, the players who've been there and done it for so long. The, the, even the best art in living we would all probably name. He looks for new solutions. He, and he's like, he's not pandering. I think that's the, that's the thing that Martin Samuel said. He's not, because he, 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 he kind of compared that with Nathan Jones, who I'm sure will come up to speed to. He's not, you've got to come up to meet his standards always. And if not, he'll find another way to, to try and win. Here's a quick one, and I'll show all this, because players get accused of being complacent very often in the game. You know, if things fall short on the pitch, can a manager be complacent? Because I've played under a few that have. I've seen it, I've witnessed it, where you can go, well, it's it. about us, what about you? Because that's how it feels now. I feel like the players are going, about us, you know, questions and changes, and like, what about you? They start, once they start pointing the finger and looking at you. Interesting. Interesting. Have you had a manager who was done it? I I agree. Managers can be complacent, absolutely. But look, I, I think fundamentally, probably does come down to relationships, and some are some are like at least freeing in this squad, and and between Guardiola and some and, and some of the players, and and ultimately, I don't think he's ever been very good at, at handling that or dealing with that. He's always got to be completely in control, and if you're not towing the line, then he's going to find someone else who will. Players go to City because, well, because they want to win stuff, but also because they believe Guardiola will make them better players, that he he is an elite manager who can make you better so that you, you, your attri- main attribute might be your your speed and your strength, but he'll give you um, a chance to work on your vision and so on. P- people go there and, then they, and they know he demands you, that you're always better, always better, and then they outcome will be that you are better but I think also at some point players want to have fun and enjoy themselves and feel part of a group and know what they're about that camaraderie thing and sometimes you can just the balance is wrong it just feels right now that the balance is slightly wrong that he's being demanding tactically and on an individual level and it just doesn't look like fun well, we saw plenty of fun, plenty of camaraderie at the end of that game at the Tottenham Hotspur uh, Stadium because Harry Kane, a certified Spurs, Spurs legend, of course, already. Well, it, obviously, he's entrenched that even more. He's now the club's record goal scorer. But the question is really where he ranks amongst the greatest strikers we've seen in this country. He's the fastest to 200 Premier League goals, if you're one of those that think football started at the advent of the Premier League. Uh, he's only behind Alan Shearer and Wayne Rooney on that list. Um, and we saw some debate on the television yesterday, didn't we, about who's better. I don't think we need to go down that route, do we? Or do we? <laughs> <laughs> but he continues to be sensational, Harry Kane. He continues to just chip away at the goals. Lots of people reflecting in the last few weeks about what his future may be if he doesn't win a trophy this season at Tottenham Hotspur in particular. But... um when you look at some of the great goal scorers, um, Jimmy Greaves, you know, his his record, you know, lasted 50 years. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, his goal scoring record, not just at Tottenham Hotspur, but elsewhere. But you think Harry Kane, to surpass it, has done something truly special? Undoubtedly. And if we are comparing, then Alan Shearer is the only one in, in this sort of modern era, if you can call it that, um, who comes close. In my view, they're a completely different player to Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney, it's hard to even call him an out-and-out striker for yeah. long enough in his career. And I know Harry Kane has other facets to his game, and he's 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 an all-rounder. He's probably the, the biggest all-rounder of all of those three players. But 
Alan Shearer is the only one who's who's uh, still out in front in terms of just a pure goal scoring yeah. centre forward. There's part of me that wants to say Carry Kane is the better striker, though. All round. I just think, with respect to Shearer's record, which is incredible as well, for an, the early part of the goals that he was chipping off in the Premier League, the standard was not where the Premier League has been for the duration, the entirety of Harry Kane's career in it. You know, this has been the Premier Division in world football for some time now. Um, he hasn't even played for one of the best teams in that league. Um, and not not that Shearer did all those years at Newcastle either, although they were a very good team for a lot of it. My point is really that the opposition that Kane has faced has been far tougher than the goals that Shearer scored, particularly early on where he's banging in 35 a season. It was literally, it looked so easy for him. Um, and, and Tony, I guess, look, you're the person to ask about this, but but <laughs> oh. that is the only, I, uh, I don't know who you'd put in your dream team if you had to choose one, but I think that's why I would maybe put Kane just ahead. Well, you made some great points, uh, Hugh, about talking about Kane and the year and the time. I played, I always try and bring myself in and think about this. I, I, you know, I played 18 years or, or 19 years as a pro, got to 38, and by the way, I scored 267 goals in my whole career. He's 29. He's achieved that at one club. <laughs> and I played lower down, mm. okay? And then I look and think, what you touched on, he played with a partner, partners along the way. Les Ferdinand, his dad, obviously Chris Sutton. He had partners. Kane's done it without a partner. You know, you could say Hume Sung. He, he plays as a white man. Harry's had to battle against two centre-halves nearly all his career. And he's done it brilliantly. And one thing I get a little bit frustrated about, because he is the most complete all-round centre-forward, I think, in world football by country mile, because his game is based on so many other aspects. If you just look at the whole career at 29 years old and what he's done and who not won anything, and you just look at all that, his numbers are extraordinary. And my point was that I get a little bit frustrated when I hear sometimes everyone says Jimmy Greaves was a genius, but Harry Kane's never, ever put in that level of being a genius. His game is based on the genius because the genius is so good that he's complete in every area. So surely he must be a genius as well. That's an interesting point because like, the other thing is he's always, he's often spoken about as someone who he was nat- naturally gifted. I think that's the reason why we're talking about that because he, he had to work so hard for it. You know, you're obviously saying he had to lose the puppy fat. He had to go out and loan to the championship. He had to uh, late Orient even. So he was never the kind of the, the gifted prodigy that everyone picked out through every age group. I don't think he was ever that player. That's probably why he's not regarded like that. And that arguably makes him even more sort of admirable yeah. in what he's achieved. I saw Benzema as a kid when he so he joined. He started playing for Leon at seventeen, and Benzema was nowhere near the player that he become later in his career. He was quite lazy, a bit of puppy fat, like you talked about. Uh, Kane's never been that. He's always worked really hard in his game. But I remember watching him and thinking. And someone said to me, "I was at Leon watching a game. He was about 16. They said, what do you think of this kid? They think he's a really hot prospect. And he played well and he scored two goals in this game. And I said, he looks like a real finisher. I said, but, you know, he's got a long way to go because he does a lot of things. But how he's progressed, Benzema as a player, Kane's that. He's done what Benzema's done and the record that he's got. I mean, he's a a better, even more complete player, I think, than Benzema. Yeah, Benzema was one of those. He was so strong, so quick as a kid. That he was a bully, basically. Mm-hmm. He was hitting in 30 yarders, he was running in behind, he was scoring goals for fun. And I remember Jose Reno getting to Real Madrid and saying they have not developed his fundamentals enough 
because he scored every week and he's just been allowed to do what he wanted um, and he's got loads of work to do on his basics. I mean, you look at him now, he's a complete yeah. centre-forward, he's unbelievable, fitness is there, still going strong. So, um, yeah, I see where you're coming from on this. Anyway, look, we're going to, I think, talk a little bit more about Manchester City, but we will stick to the football next as we review this weekend in the Premier League. Similar story for Liverpool on the way. That's next. Liverpool have now lost three straight away league matches for the first time since 2012. Beaten with ease. 3-0 by Wolves at Molyneux. Huge win for Julian Lopetegui and Wolves. I just want to start with them. At 10 points from the last 18 available, Gregor, they were streets ahead in this game. Credit to them. Yeah, I think they look. I think under Lopetegui, Wolves look like team transformed. Um, the ten, the tactical sort of intelligence, the way that they they now look far more kind of defensively resolute and uh, organised. But they still have a threat, and they can break really quickly now. And the you know the way Neves got forward for the third goal in particular was was uh, was magnificent. So they made a few you know canny looking additions as well in January, um, and you know. I personally don't think that they're going to be in the mix for relegation when it, when, it, when we get to me. I think we should just go to Liverpool next. I mean, I could keep talking about the positivity the Wolves played with, but I think it, it is kind of inter, intermixed with how bad Liverpool were in this game, Alisson. Um, it's just becoming one of those regular stories now with them. Yeah. What do you say about how Liverpool played? Well, the first thing is, you know, Put your hands in the air if you were surprised by the result, and no one would have been. So that speaks volumes, I think. Three nil. You go. Well, this is part of the problem this season. Uh, Liverpool's ability to regroup, having conceded one goal, is is the worst they've ever had. That seventeen percent of games they'll win after conceding first. It's been as high as seventy one percent. I mean. That's quite a drop-off. It's ludicrous. All the stats, everything. This is the worst season in every department. Defensive record is worse. You know, games with them without Van Dijk, you know, can't do it. Uh, the loss of Mane. Uh, oh, it's just dreadful. The drop-off. It's drop-off. It's the drop-off in every department has been huge. It's not just one area. It's everywhere. Uh, I think when it started to looked dodgy at the start of the season. It it felt like, oh, you know, um, if it's not clicking for a team like Liverpool who rely on everyone buying into the the energy and the press and the intensity of winning the ball back, then it'll then it'll look a bit broken and they just have to get the intensity back. It's it's not just that. It's everything. Everything's everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. And the magic, that veneer of it's okay because we know exactly what we're doing. We're such a well-run club. All of that has vanished. There's been a high turnover of um, people upstairs at Liverpool, whether it's uh, people who do scouting or decide who, what money goes out, it's, or do the psychology or the physio. There's been a high turnover of backroom staff at a high level which d- doesn't necessarily mean everyone's falling out with everyone else, but it, you know it, it can mean you're just not getting in the better people when they've gone. Klopp's been there a while, so people are used to him. It used to be about he was a breath of fresh air, 
his fit with Merseyside was perfect. He, you know, his values were superb. People had huge respect for him in the building, whether they were the cleaner or the star striker or whatever role they played. They they felt he, you know, he was spot on with his, didn't put a foot wrong in terms of what he said and what he felt was important. And now he's looking a little tired and he he's run out of inspirational things to say after a game. And if if you lose badly or unexpectedly and then your manager says, I, you know, you saw what I saw, this isn't very good, I'm running out of things to say, that can't lift the team next time. It's it's the well has run dry and then one problem becomes another problem. So snowballs in a negative way, just as it sometimes it builds in a crescendo in a positive way. When a few small things go right, it gets better and better. So the tools aren't there to re to regroup and You've given up. Right. You've given up. (laughs) You can just say it. You're broken. You're a broken woman and you've given up. I mean, you don't have to keep going. It's fine. We can hear it. You've broken tea. When it's broken, what it takes to fix it is, I mean, could take a long time. It could take a long time. I don't, maybe some of the signings that that Liverpool have made should now be seen as quick fix. And that's not what it requires. And I think it also, if I went through, a great team is better than the sum of its parts. And at the moment, everyone's just slightly below their best. I have no words, uh, said Jurgen Klopp, exasperated Jurgen Klopp. The magic may be running out for him at Anfield. What do you think? Well, Alison's a broken woman by the sounds of it. And I'm a broken man <laughs> by Liverpool. Um, it feels some ways, and you have relationships in life. You know, obviously you have partners and then you have a relationship with your teammates, your managers. And it feels like the love affair with that him and his team, where he just cuddled them and loved them. It was, you know, romance of the early days, and it was just beautiful. And now it feels like that relationship is just drifted and gone. And all that beauty at the start that we saw, and obviously it got momentum along the way. They have won 9-0 this year against Bournemouth, and they did win 7-1 at Glasgow Rangers. But we've lost five of the last ten, been dreadful. And Alison said at the very start, Losing 3-0 wasn't a surprise. And Greg went, really, 3-0? Well, look at Brighton away. Look at Brentford away. Look at Napoli away. Uh, I mean, I've seen a team that's just basically every month falling apart. They've, they, mm, uh, you can't go, mm, you know. I'm just, I'm just, awful. Liverpool are awful. They are awful. But what I'm saying is that, you know, just basing it on your analogy, this is the, this is the kids period, right? I mean, it was, it was fireworks at the start, right? We built up to the wedding. Fantastic day out. <laughs> Lifted the trophy, if you like. You know, you then things settle down, you go back home. The kids, kids. The kids cause a lot of stress. There's not yeah. as many date night. Maybe There's neither no- romantic weekend away. Well, basically, might need a lawyer then. Move you know, with but, the club. But, but what I'm saying is, once you get used to it, once you get used to the new busy life, you begin to enjoy it again and things... You know, start being positive. So it's not it's not all over. It just is a lull, little bit of a lull, I'm, an adjustment period, a transition, if you like. I, I'm I, when I saw the midfield three of Liverpool sat on Saturday, I thought that is all lovely footballers, all gifted, all technically, you know, sound. Against obviously Ruben Neves, who's a bit of everything, by the way, and Amina, who's who can get around the pitch and make it very very difficult. And Liverpool were found wanting. I mean, the evidence was in the first five minutes before 
uh, you know, Matip uh, put in his own own goal. There was two great chances before that. You know, that, that could have been behind Liverpool. Um, so, and yeah, this is, about the Andy Robertson not closing down. It's just there's so many things now that are jarring. You're like, what are they what, thinking there? What? I know. I think Keita was it was beside them, and you could argue they're one of them has to go. But it, it was Robertson. He has to go because there's another player that Keita could have closed down if he cut it back. It's completely baffling. There's so many things now you're seeing Liverpool doing that are baffling. And I know there's like when you have this kind of the snowball effect of yeah. negativity, whether it's who you're playing alongside sometimes is a thing. You know, we've talked about Van Dijk being such a big presence for so long. And even, even he came back and was like, he's not They're quite cool. the same player. So they don't really have that, they don't have that totem to look to look up to beside them. And it used to be Henderson as the big, the big figure, the leader. He's not in the team. What, there's, there are players who have come in and they've just not, they've not hit the ground. Nunes, we can keep talking about what, you know, there's so many people making yeah. excuses for his stats. You know, his stats are great. You know, it's not happened for him this year. So, there's a lot of reasons and it's just all combined and it's as I said last week Klopp looks like he's not got a clue what he's got to do but to fix this he keeps saying that's not allowed he did it again <laughs> I went through he says that's not allowed that's impossible can't happen he says it every weekend and again that's not allowed like, well you know we need something more than that I think Jürgen we need to you know you can't just say that's not allowed your players are doing it every week you're in trouble if Andy Robinson's not doing it or not been on the same level. And here's a question for everybody here. Pick Liverpool's player of the season. Yeah, there's your answer. We all start thinking. You pick Brentford, you'll name five. <laughs> you'll name five at Brentford, you'll name five at Brighton, and you'll you know, you pick Liverpool's player of the season. I know what I'd say. For me, no, he's Allison. not playing. Allison. Oh, well, Alisson for me. Allison. Yeah, maybe Harvey Elliott. Yeah. The, the thing is, the issues for Liverpool, again, it's like we could have seen them happen. We've talked about it before, an element of fatigue. Depth has been an issue. You know, it's when it's going well, you're winning games. We're, we're kind of sitting there. We're not really focusing too much on the fact that Andrew Robertson's playing a lot of minutes for a number of seasons or Trent Alexander-Arnold is doing the same. Even Mo Salah, you know, you, this is a forward player who basically plays every minute of every game, really. So other clubs that doesn't happen at, you know, your fullbacks, your wingers, the, the work rate in those positions, there's a lot of players being rested or at least substituted regularly to be able to enable them to go on and on and on. Liverpool played every game last season. So again, at the end of last season, we were saying, will fatigue hit them this year? And there's kind of this element of, well, they've been so good every year, it's just going to continue. They've been effervescent. It's just going to continue. And ultimately, they are human. Everyone at Liverpool is human. Add to that new new faces, getting used to, let's be honest, one of the best managers in the world, but one of the most intense styles of football that we've seen for a long time. And if those few players don't hit the ground running, yes, midfield Liverpool fans will say there hasn't been good enough recruitment there either. But there are a number of things now going into the melting pot that have created this ultimately. And again, I also feel like the mental fatigue is there for Liverpool where a lot of their players now are just wanting to get to the end of the season, have a rest, start again. Maybe, you know, you spoke about other managers who maybe aren't at the top of their game as well. Maybe there's fatigue for Jurgen Klopp too because he puts in a lot of physical energy during games but also you know the mental work that it takes to manage at that level the emotional stakes that there have been for Liverpool in terms of disappointment you know you forget that they've gone so far in so many competitions they lost the Champions League final it's a huge blow you know missing out on the titles by a handful of points more than one occasion that has to be an emotional blow to feel like you're going to go through 38 games give it everything win just about every game and still not win the title 
on more than one occasion. So I just kind of think for Liverpool, you know, it's a, just a difficult time and they're just not going to get the response that they need without a rest. So um, I'm not enjoying it at all, you know, as a Man United fan, I'm going to say that. No, I just don't enjoy seeing you and Alison broken on a Monday morning, Tony. It, it hurts me. It hurts me. Final word about Wolves very quickly, Gregor, um, because they got games against Southampton and Bournemouth next. This is a huge chance for Wolves to basically make themselves safe now. Yeah. And as I said there, you, you look, they've made some canny additions and then you look at the players who came on. Troy came on, set up the, the third and Moutinho also came on, won the ball in the build-up to that goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Podence is a top goal scorer coming off the bench now. They're like, there's competition and there's the looks of it. Yeah, there always was. We said this many times. This, on paper, this this was a really good squad with a few more additions now as well. Um, and as I said, a manager who seems to have them really, really difficult to to break down, but also a threat on on the break. They're not kind of you know, they're not playing swashbuckling football, but they are they are a real a real threat. And they, you know, it's not just about sitting in a low block. They're kind of as I say, they're flexible, they're intelligent. You know, the, the early chances against Liverpool were um, were from pressing high, were from like suffocating Liverpool and not let, not allowing them to play out from the back. But they can also sit back and then play on the break. So you know. I, I think Lopetegui has been a been 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 the biggest, you know, the biggest deciding factor in, in their in their uptick. He's been he's he's changed them. Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier on that we might talk some more about Manchester City. While we were recording the podcast, the big news broke, which I'm sure you have all seen, that Manchester City are facing the threat of relegation after being charged by the Premier League with more than 100 alleged breaches of financial regulations. That's followed a four-year investigation. This is huge news. Joining us to discuss it, our chief sports reporter, Martin Ziegler. Hi, Martin. Tell us firstly, what are the allegations against Manchester City currently that they are facing? So they can be broken down, Hugh, into um, basically not reporting correct financial information uh, as is required um, over nine seasons from 2009 to 2018. Not reporting Roberto Mancini's salary correctly during four years he was manager. Not reporting players' pay correctly. We don't know which players, but some players at least pay correctly over three seasons. And over the last five seasons, not cooperating in good faith with the Premier League investigation and and um, providing information and documents when requested. Where did this all begin? We're talking about a four-year investigation. How did some of these alleged irregularities come to light? So the the, the sort of the, the tinder that sort of lit the fire on this was the Football League's investigation. Uh, sorry, the Football League's revelations, I should say, which was um, there was a, a computer hacker from Portugal called Rui Pinto who provided a, a Football League's cache of documents which the Spiegel and others, um, the German website, published numerous things related to Manchester City and other clubs, but um, especially Manchester City, led to a UEFA investigation and then a, a, a Premier League one. Alleging, didn't they, that City overstated sponsorship income with money paid by the club's Abu Dhabi owners instead of sponsors linked to the Gulf state, which had effectively, uh, allegations of course, doubled the former manager Roberto Mancini's wages via a secret contact in an Abu Dhabi club. So lots of rule breaches here, again, alleged against Manchester City. And I think the initial response from fans here, Martin, is, well, nothing's going to happen. 
just going to get a slap on the wrist. They might have to pay a hefty fine, but if any owners can pay it, it's going to be Manchester City's. And so nothing's going to really happen. What is your initial take on this? Because I don't think we've seen a club with as many alleged breaches. That's for sure. But obviously, they are such a high-profile football club that, that any major penalty would have huge ramifications on the, the league going forward. And of course, this is a league which has grown in value, grown in entertainment value as well on the basis of a, a, you know a number of things, including great players on high salaries and fantastic managers on high salaries. I mean, that is, I guess, for a lot of football fans, the cynic in them. From your perspective, are Manchester City likely to be punished heavily here? I don't see how the if if the rule breach is approved, then I don't, it doesn't get any more serious than this. This is sort of cheating, effectively lying, providing wrong information, breaking so many rules. This isn't just like spending too much money, you know, more you know, and breaking break, breaking the financial rules by that. This is a sort of concerted effort by to, to pull the wool over the Premier League's eyes, and, and the, the member clubs, the other member clubs, no. They're not going to be happy if there's just a fine, are they? Um, but this is as serious as it gets. Um, and I, that's why I think the threat of relegation is really, really serious. Now, I've seen a um, a, a, a lawyer um, who, who's hanging as a Manchester City supporting lawyer who um, has very well across these issues has, has tweeted that he thinks much the same would be absolutely incredible, but it is an ongoing story. And Martin, you are working on it. Uh, so I'll leave you to get back to work, but appreciate you joining us very quickly on the game podcast to discuss it. Thanks then, guys. Okay, let's quickly uh, round off. I think uh, the bottom of the table is, has been a focus in the last few podcasts. I think it needs to continue to be that, particularly given some of the results we saw this weekend. Let's start with Nottingham Forest. Not great. Brennan Johnson got them a valuable first-half goal, ended up being the winner. They came past Leeds uh, by a goal to nil. Moves them six points clear of Leeds. Leeds only outside the relegation zone on goal difference at the moment. Huge pressure on the Leeds boss, Jesse Marsh. Leeds United fans not happy with him. They haven't won in the Premier League since November the 5th. Marsh says they find ways to lose, but they did have a lot of opportunities in this game. Um, and I think, again, you know, any kind of spirit positivity is being drained from Leeds United at the moment with results like this because there's been a number of matches that they have performed better than the opposition, not got anything out of the game. That can't keep happening. No, it's been the common theme for him, Hugh. And um, look, Rodrigo getting injured as well hasn't helped. And Badford, yes, getting back to full fitness might take him a bit of time. It feels like a Calvert-Lewin scenario to me. It might take him a bit longer. And a bad time to look for players' form is in February, you know, when you've been out for so long. Um, so it's a tricky one. And you're right, Leeds seem to be in nearly every game and they're doing really good things. They just haven't been clinical enough. And I'm not sure how... Jesse Marsh's team are going to react to this because I've they play a style that's very similar to Bielsa in ways and they've become a bit more pragmatic defensively. They're just, if you're not clinical, in any level, especially the Premier League, the top flight, you have to be clinical and they, they haven't been that for me. I think when the onus is on leads to, to break down the opposition, they struggle. I think when it's, all, when it's the kind of high-tempo, you know, buccaneering football... Uh, high press and high energy when, when that's that's leads to their best and Forrest really didn't allow them to 
to play that way. They kind of let them have the ball for large periods of the time, uh, large periods of the game, and they didn't really have the craft and the sort of ingenuity to to mm. to, to break them down. Look, look we did they did create chances. Sinisteras was just an absolute sitter. That's you know you cannot legislate for that. Um, the Forest, on the other hand, you know, I think we've, we've said what you just said about Leeds playing well and not getting the results. Forest have done that, as Cooper said, throughout the season, and this is, I think, is the lowest XG mm. of any team to you know to have won a game this season. So, man, they won't be bothered one bit because that's that's lifts lifts Forest right up the table, and they don't look like they're going to be in the in the in the shake up at all come the end of the season now. Alison, Leeds United have got two matches against Manchester United, so again, those will be. Um, physical and emotional because they are big matches for the fans as well. And then two huge games against Everton and Southampton towards the bottom. 3-0 defeat at Brentford. It's now eight defeats in the last nine Premier League games for Southampton. Six of those came under Nathan Jones. Um, it's a strange one, isn't it? They're three points from safety. Now, they had more possession in the game, the same number of shots, more shots on target, and yet at times carved open at will by Brentford and uh, reports today that the Southampton hierarchy have had discussions over Nathan Jones's future which for me is, is something that I don't want to hear a manager who could possibly lose their job so soon is kind of ridiculous particularly as they are a manager who had a pretty decent reputation when they came to the club Nathan Jones talking about um compromising I guess He's not going to do it anymore. Feels like he's let the players down by not putting his own stamp on the team. What do you make of that rhetoric, Tony? I found it very strange at the weekend that he accepted certain things, which he admitted to. Like uh, he accepted certain behaviour. And well, if you accept that and you're going against your principles, you're going to it's going to come at a price for you. Now Nathan's had two jobs outside Luton. He was at Stoke and didn't last particularly long at Stoke. He had an incredible, they think so highly of Nathan at Luton Town. They thought he was a great manager for, for them. And then he goes to, obviously, Southampton and has found it very difficult from day one. But openly admitting that I didn't do what I should be doing and now he's saying that I'm going to have to be that now. I think it's a bit late in the day to start saying, well, you know, I've given him a bit too much leeway or whatever way you want to phrase it. And they've not, they were really poor at Brentford. They were in the game for a period, but the moment they went 2-0 down, it was a pack of cards effect. They just looked like it was going to go 3-4. And that would have been very worrying for Southampton fans because one thing fans don't want is that even if you get beat, but you don't get beat in a certain manner where you come away and you think, well, they, they, they threw in the towel. Because that's what it felt like. I heard James Ward-Prowse basically saying, you know, it's the worst period at Southampton that he's felt in terms of the spirit around the place, which is obvious, you know, bottom of the league, losing pretty much every single week. But I saw reports today uh, that several players, to quote the story that I read, several players were unhappy at Southampton. And then I watched the game and I was like, hold on a minute. The level of intensity, commitment, I mean... Decision-making, marking, losing your players, tracking runs. Ultimately, I don't see anyone in that change room who can make a point about being unhappy. You cannot blame, you know, we're talking about things that you can't legislate for a moment ago with, with missed chances. I don't know if a manager at this level of football can legislate for his players totally losing their man. In fact, not even checking over their shoulder. I mean, come on, this is the Premier League. This is, there is a certain level required. And 
I don't think managers at this level need to coach players how to mark. You shouldn't have reached this level as a defender if you can't mark. Gregor, you can mark and yeah. you didn't reach that. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I think that's a bit simplistic because like, what Nathan Jones had to do when he went in there was engage the players and make them want to play for him. And I know that you know we can have you can have you know, lofty conversations about players should always it should matter about having to play for the coach. But it's the truth, he creates an atmosphere. He he sets a kind of tone and a, and a, as I say, an atmosphere in, in the environment. He's so spiky. He has been from day one, and like part of that's not his fault. His old fans were chanting, chanting for him to go, and saying they didn't have a clue what he was doing, and other less flattering things within like three games. So it, he was within his right to be a bit spiky. But what he said, what he said was also quite kind of conflicting as well. It was saying that I was brought in to do a certain job uh, because of things I've done in the past, but I'm not doing it because I'm pandering to to, to Premier League Premier League players. It, like. If they're, they're bringing you in to do a job, then do the job that you're, you've always done, and the reason why they've hired you—that's, you know, that seems fairly simple to me. And you understand, you can also understand that he's moving up a level, and he thinks that he might have to treat Premier League players slightly differently. But and that, but that all just ties in again with him creating the right atmosphere and not having to have that conversation. It's just it's somehow getting them to to want to play from in the first place, and part of that is on reputation where he's come from. It's all quite. No, it's a, it's it's complicated, but he's a spiky character, and I actually think he needs to go back to as I'm referencing Martin Samuel again, as he said uh, this morning. You know, the the guy who when he arrived at Luton and uh, thought they were playing too much table tennis, took the table tennis table out to the middle of the pitch and set fire to it. He's someone who he was the number one in control at Luton. He, no one, like whatever he said, went, and that's that's his character. That's actually him. That's that's the kind of personality he is. He's full of fire and intensity. Yeah. He needs to do that. He needs to be that at Southampton. And the players will either get on board with it or they won't. Either way, if he's if he's doing it halfway, you know, mealy mouthed, he's out he's out the door soon anyway. Powering is the word, Hugh, because yeah. admitting that he pandered to them is it actually makes him look quite silly to say that. Mm. Because you're accepting something that you don't agree with. And also, how bad does it have to have been for his job to be scrutinised like it has and be under threat so quickly? We're talking about a ghost really just walked in the door. As far as that's is people didn't want him in the door in the first yeah. place, Ronnie. They didn't. It's not necessarily about the results or the way that they played. They weren't great, but some of that. Greg, is, some of been, that was. You've been in camps and you've been in dressing rooms and you've been around the training grounds of of clubs. You know when the, a group of players totally don't buy into someone. And that looks like it's happened as well. And and you're right, Hugh, to point out players not doing things. But you make them do things. And th- and there's no uncertain terms. And if he hasn't done that, then it's down to him. Yeah. It's a, look, it's delicate. And as I say, he's, he's stepping up a level. He's, he, he's working with players that he hasn't in the past. And he wa- he obviously thought he had to do, to do it slightly differently to try and try and get buy-in. And it's not worked. And the other thing, one other thing to say is he, he's quite loose-lipped. Like he, when he said pandering, he might. I've all, I've been in lots of his press conferences, and he just he's a motor mouth. He rambles. He goes on. Th- he's quite honest, but he also says things sometimes that you think, I'm not sure you really meant that, and that, that could have been one of those things. So, I mean, he's he's got to do something quickly though, or else he's out. Allison, quick word for some of your boys: Brentford extending their unbeaten run to nine matches, longest run in the top flight for 87 years, seventh. European hopes alive? 
Why not? I honestly, I was, I've been relentlessly impressed by Brentford and Thomas Frank, and uh, it went up a notch against Southampton. Partly because these are the games that Brentford were accused of not being able to stamp their mark on. They lift their games for when it's you know the big teams, but they are a little more ordinary when it's teams below them. But the point is they're seventh and there aren't that many teams uh, <laughs> above them left to raise their game against. So they're going to have to raise their game against the teams below them. And they're, they're starting to do that. Um, Thomas Frank said he felt that at least uh, for the first half, it was best he'd seen his team gel this season. Honestly, you look at their team and I think people who don't maybe pay too much attention to the the teams that aren't their team, they could name the Brentford front three and then say, oh, but the rest are a bit ordinary. Actually, they're not. They're not household names, but they are so impressive. I'm glad Tony referenced Rico Henry earlier in the podcast because I think he's currently the best left back in the country by quite some distance in terms of consistency and sheer all-round ability. He's he's just phenomenal. And in their midfield just gel and work so hard that their second goal was a thing of beauty. They've got players who last season you wondered which way it was going to go, were they going to be sort of eased out, not quite good enough. They're all blossoming now. It's it's incremental. And if that's happening, and when he was asked about dreaming of Europe, Thomas Frank said, well, I am a dreamer. He didn't say no. He said, why not? Because they're just getting better every week. And it's just so significant that they're starting to turn it on and sparkle when the teams they're facing uh, aren't, you know, aren't the sexy ones that get the crowds up. And he asked the crowd to get up and they treated victory against bottom club Southampton as if it was victory against Arsenal. And what was interesting was they play Arsenal next and... Um, Frank said, well, you know, he expects Arsenal to be really, really up for it because they, they were so embarrassed by Brentford last season. And it's become, you know, out of out of nothing, it's become a, a, a London derby that has some needle to it. Who would have predicted that when Brentford were promoted, that they were going to be a team that Arsenal fans would really feel a need to, to show their quality against? They're... they're they're a team nobody wants to face at all. And it's it used to be, oh, well, you might get points against Brentford if you're if you're mid-table or below. And now they're proving that they'll cause you problems no matter what your reputation. So it's just they are in such a perfect place. And I think all the teams we've spoken about who have problems, their fans would be thinking, oh, can we have Thomas Frank, please? Uh, absolutely sensational from Thomas Frank. I mean, look, we can talk about it if it does come to fruition, but I wonder how being in Europe would affect Brentford. That would be a really interesting one. But look, they're doing sensationally well. What a turnaround it would be from being in the championship to being in Europe within two seasons. That would be incredible. Anyway, playing fantastic football. Uh, speaking of which, Enzo Fernandez, fantastic for Chelsea. In his debut, it was a goalless draw against Fulham. British transfer record, a £106 million move from Benfica. Uh, I went to this game on Friday night um, and, yeah, it, there was nothing really in it, to be honest. Both sides were good, not great. Uh, but Fernandez showed some great passes. Um, doesn't shirk a challenge in midfield. Um, 
positional awareness, very comfortable on the ball. Looked like he played for Chelsea for quite some time, to be honest. Couldn't believe he'd signed uh, just a few days before and trained once. So um, very, very positive start from him. Got to say, though, Graham Potter's side do lack some bite in attack, <laughs> don't they? Guy Havertz, I mean, it's look, it's weird. Um, Joao Felix played about an hour before getting sent off in his first game. You're already like, they miss him. <laughs> but, but they kind of do, don't they, Tony? Yeah, and it, it was a strange game because, as you touched on, Hugh, Fulham are a really decent side. And the two boys, Tete and Robertson, either way, they keep going down the lines. They keep chasing. I can't believe the form of Willian. He's been, Incredible. He's been yeah. superb. You, you think the guy that was finished at Chelsea and then went to Arsenal and struggled and he went off to other shores and then he's come back. His relationship with Robertson on the left side has been brilliant. Two words when it comes to Willian. If you go and watch a game that he's playing in live, all manipulation. And that's not a euphemism. Okay, he's absolutely incredible yeah. at keeping the ball in the right position, getting the ball, uh, his, sorry, his body between the defender and the ball. He's absolutely brilliant at it. And uh, yeah, just literally the touches. Still did the first yard. The, the yeah, first yeah, couple yeah. of yards, explosive pace that just buys him a half yard to get the cross of the shot. And yeah, he's, even just before the World Cup, he got a handful of games just before the World Cup and he was, he was outstanding. I, was, I think it was against Manchester United, the last game before the World Cup. He was incredible. So, yeah, he's been he's been an absolute star. Right? Arsenal, Redemption Arsenal, time for him. Arsenal fans kind of wondering why he couldn't do it straight after leaving <laughs> Chelsea. He had to go back to Brazil. Maybe just get a bit of Samba back into his feet and then come back to the Premier League anyway. He's doing uh, fantastically well. But um, it was one of those results. I know we spoke about Liverpool earlier on, you know, losing a, a, another game. But it's another game that Chelsea didn't win. And at the end of it, I kind of thought... We've almost become um, numb to the fact that Chelsea aren't that good and that their manager's not under that much pressure, but he should be, really. Yeah, he, he should be. I'm more optimistic because I do look at Chelsea, I think defensively there's, I mean, the two centre-halves were terrific on the night. You know, Mitrovic didn't get a kick. And you, know, and, and you could say the age of uh, Thiago Silva, but he still looks like he's a... He cruises through games. I do think it, it's a lot more optimism around Chelsea. I My biggest issue has been since day one, is Graham Potter the man that can put this team together and have a, a style that's based on adventure, exciting players? Because he is whatever... I mean, it sounds really cliched to say this, but I do feel like he's very pragmatic. And it's not about fast closing down high-tempo football. It's it's not that game with him. And I think that is going to be his biggest challenge because his team, I think under since he's been there, he's had 22 games, something like that, 21, 22. They've got less than, they're just under a goal a game. And I don't care how many players you got out injured, Chelsea have got squad to dream of in many, many ways mm. and could find a way. And I, I, I think that's the, the going to be the biggest challenge for Graham Potter. Big win for Leicester. At Aston Villa this weekend, uh, 4-2 win, galvanised by new signings. Suter, Tetti, Christiansen all started. The Brazilian winger Tetti was really good in this game. Suter, own goal on debut, but uh, got the victory in the end. Um, but maybe these players will give Leicester just that added bit of energy now for the second half of the season. Yeah, and uh, Brendan Rodgers kind of in every single interview after the game was in. This is the player I've been calling out for for 18 months. A right winger who can carry the ball, who can, you know, a bit of pace, gives us that balance. And, you know, he, he may have been right, but um, anyway, obviously Leicester have done very little in, in the transfer market until till this month, yeah, until January. So, but he, he did look really lively, lightning quick, you know, full of full of energy. And as you say, Suter, 
to the man mountain all the way to the bit of a, a shaky shaky <laughs> start um, I, I, can't, I can't wait to see him play are you getting tired of him being called an Australian I mean every bit of commentary that I heard he was described as an Australian he's an Australian international he's a proud Scotsman you're right okay. add the word international exactly, exactly. <laughs> he's an Australian international he's a proud Scotsman that needs to be you know just fight in the corner for you of course Jonathan Northbrook I'm not proud enough as well <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, of course, he's not a Scotland international, so I guess we will hold that against him. Um, but it was a positive result for Leicester, who had attacking flair, Kelechi Iheanacho, uh, infuriating. Yeah. So, you know, he has these games where he reminds you what a good player he can be, and you kind of start going, if he can play like that every week, why doesn't he start every week? And the answer is, well, he doesn't play like that every week, ultimately, but shows you the quality that, you know, we saw at Manchester City all too fleetingly. And we've seen two fleetingly at Leicester City as well. Um, but a positive victory for them, and I guess um, falls into the category of an important win towards the bottom, to be perfectly honest. Finally, though, this one, I guess, more towards the top of the table in terms of Newcastle, but West Ham towards the bottom. It's now four draws in the last five Premier League games for Newcastle. One all draw with West Ham at St. James's Park, which maybe we reflect on uh, Alisson as a kind of vital point for West Ham, but more points dropped for Newcastle. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think I think uh, David Moyes, I think he genuinely didn't believe his club were in true danger. And their form of late, whilst it's not exactly sparkling, it does speak of good organisation, sort of grown-upness to it. And to to be able to be composed at St. James's Park at the moment is a big deal because often it's just the the atmosphere gets to teams and the sort of the role that Newcastle have been on. And I suppose the worry at Newcastle will be it's all been going so swimmingly that they're just struggling to score the goals, get the points on the board and that maybe that top four place is going to be difficult to grasp. But yeah, I think it was a more important result for West Ham. It, it to, to me, it just sort of just sort of cemented the idea that I don't think I think they are too they are too good and well managed to go down. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Alison Rudd, with the final word on this week's episode of the Game Podcast. Gregor Robertson, Tony Cascarino, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening as well. Uh, it was a very busy weekend with some important results. Thankfully, we got through just about all of it there. Uh, listen, if you want to subscribe to the game, you can do online. It's the times.co.uk forward slash the game. Do pick up a paper, loads of great stuff there, or download the Times app wherever you get your apps from. And we will see you on Thursday. See you soon.